Our reading this morning is from Acts 11, verses 9 to 13. You can find it in your bulletin or in your Bible. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted, exhorted them to remain, all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a, a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kathy. Um, Just a reminder that when we have opportunity, we like to take uh, a few questions at the end of the message, and uh, you can uh, be aware of that um, as we make our way through this passage and through this message this morning. Uh, My number is in the bulletin there, and you can text those questions to me uh, if if they pop up uh, during the course of the, the message. Feel free to do that. Um, it's the only allowable texting during the sermon. Uh, every few chapters in the book of Acts, uh, you get these, what you could call snapshots of the church. Every few chapters, you get a, a description of the church, sometimes in different places, and uh, they give you a picture of what the, the early church was like and what was happening in the early church and, and what events were occurring there and, and what uh, movements of the Spirit of God were at work. And we get another one here in this chapter in Acts chapter 11. And here's, here's sort of what's happened so far. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said to the disciples, listen, you are going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then in Samaria, and, or Jer- Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. That's what uh, uh, the mission is for you. 
The problem was, was that they didn't go anywhere. They, they stayed in Jerusalem, and so they were being witnesses in Jerusalem, but they weren't fulfilling this mission that God had laid out for them. So in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, how interesting is that? 1 verse 8, 8 verse 1, we read that a persecution breaks out in Jerusalem, and so the Christians are scattered all over the place. So that by 1119, where we are in our passage this morning, that mission is actually being fulfilled. You'll notice in verse 19, it says that, um, that there were people who came as far as Phoenicia. So that's Lebanon. The church was being established in what's modern day Lebanon. Uh, and in Cyprus, uh, the church was being established in what's modern day Cyprus, I guess. And uh, the church was being established in uh, Antioch, which is not a city that uh, exists anymore. Well, it exists, but it's got a different name, a Turkish name that I can't pronounce. Um, But in any case, uh, this city was in the Roman province of Syria on the northeastern border of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, and it was a thriving community. So, This picture that we get in Acts chapter 11 is of a new church that is part of the fulfillment of Christ's mission to the church that he gave when he founded it way back in Acts chapter 1. It's finally happening. Now, Antioch, very interesting city. It was uh, the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome itself and then Alexandria in North Africa. It had a uh, population of about 500,000 people, so a little bigger than the city of, or a little smaller, I should say, than the city of Hamilton. It was very cosmopolitan. There were people from all over the world living there. It was very kind of multicultural, multi-ethnic. It was quite influential as a center of trade and a center of education and culture, etc. And it was super immoral. It was kind of the sin city. You know, Las Vegas is sin city. Well, it was the sin city, you could say, of the ancient world. It was pretty immoral, even by Roman standards, which were not very high. And yet, in this description that we read, there is an incredibly vibrant church in Antioch. So vibrant, in fact, that eventually it takes over from the church in Jerusalem as the main church central sending church of the, the Christian community all throughout what be, what's known as the Roman Empire. So it becomes a very, very important church. Now, remember our theme uh, that we've been, we've been uh, repeating as we're going through this series called Mission Impossible. The question we're trying to answer is, how in the world did the early church spread so quickly? What what features did it have? What, what, what characteristics did it have that, that made, it, made this Christian faith spread so quickly so that within only a few centuries it becomes the dominant religion in the ancient world and it changes the course of modern history? What was it about Christianity? And of course, one of the answers is they planted churches. They planted churches like this one in Antioch. So what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to look at what this church was like and see what we can learn from it as we live 2,000 years later in a not-too-different context and a not-too-different culture than the one this church 
was born into. So, what should our church look like? What did this church look like? Well, let's look first of all at the, almost the very last verse. In chapter 11, verse 26, it says this. It almost seems like a, almost a throwaway statement. It says, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So this is the first time that followers of Jesus Christ were referred to as Christians. And it says that they were called Christians, which means, and we know this, that they, this was not a self-chosen name. The first Christians in the book of Acts, they called themselves followers of the way, typically. And it was here in Antioch that others started calling them Christians. Now, what does that mean? What's going on here? Now, remember, this is a pagan city. Well, in verse 20 of chapter 11, it says this, Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So, let me just explain this for you. The first Christians were Jewish converts to Christianity. They came out of their Jewish religion. Many of the Gentiles who became Christians also had come through first through Judaism. So they were God-fearers like Cornelius. Remember Mark talked about Cornelius last week? This was a guy who was a God-fearer who understood something of the Old Testament religion. And so in a sense, he had been prepared for the coming of the Messiah of, of Jesus Christ. And when they were scattered throughout the land to all these different cities, what did they do? Well, they shared their faith, their newfound faith, with people like them, with Jews. The difference was, was they had now come to see that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah, uh, that, that they made about the Messiah. And so they told their Jewish friends and neighbors and community about this Jesus. But there's something different happening here. Now, by the way, just thought of this. You know, that's, that's kind of how we operate, right? We, we, we are more inclined to tell people like us about Jesus because we have these common kind of cultural threads. Like if you know people with the same ethnic background as you, as you or the same educational background as you, or maybe they're in the same line of work as you, you might be more comfortable sort of talking about your faith with people like that. And th- that's okay, but this is a new thing. It says here that these people who came down from Cyprus and Cyrene, they were speaking to Hellenists also, or Greeks, which meant that they were speaking to pagans. These were people who knew nothing about the Bible. They didn't have all that Old Testament history and foundation and stuff to build upon. They were completely different from these Jewish Christians who were sharing the faith with them. It was much more like today. I don't know if you know this, but many, many, many people today grow up knowing absolutely nothing about the Bible. Like, absolutely nothing. If you come to kids' camp, for example, which, by the way, is July 13 through July 17, 2020, sign up today. Um, If you come to kids' camp and you meet some of the kids from the community who participate in it, and you tell them the story of Noah's Ark, for example, they're like, whoa, I've never heard this before. And many of you can't imagine. How can you not know that? You think even the non-Christians 50 years ago knew the Bible stories because it was kind of part of the culture. 
It was part of the, the, the water almost that we drank and, and the cultural uh, water that we swam in, but it's not like that anymore. People have very, very little biblical knowledge. People have almost no understanding sometimes what the cross itself represents. And so here are these pagans who are encountering these believers, they who had no history of the Bible, no understanding of the Bible, they start calling these believers Christians. Christian means Christ's ones. They belonged to Jesus. And they didn't often, they weren't always using this term sort of admiringly. If you go back uh, uh, in the future, there's only three times in the Bible where Christians are mentioned, or people are believers are called Christians. One of them is in Acts 26, where Paul is in front of King Agrippa. King Agrippa hears Paul share with him the gospel, and then at one point he says, you think that you're going to be, you know, in such a short period of time, you're going to be able to persuade me to become a Christian? And you can almost, like, see the sneer on his face as he describes it this way. These, these pagans, okay, they knew almost nothing about these believers, but one thing they knew about them was that they were Christ's ones, that they belonged to Jesus. In other words, they saw this church, and they saw this group of people, and they said they're obsessed with this person, Jesus. They, they are captivi- captivated by this character. They are, are, are devoted to him. They are zealous about him. In other words, they, they realized m- very little about them at all. But one thing they did realize was that they loved the Lord Jesus. In verse 21, or sorry, in verse 20, it says they gave, they, they told them the good news about the Lord Jesus. This is a great little summary of what the church in Antioch thought about Jesus and how they related to this Jesus. Jesus, what did, what did the angel say to Joseph? When this boy is born, you name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Savior. So these people knew this Jesus as their Savior, as the one who came into the world to live the life that they should have lived and die the death that they should have died, the one who disarmed the powers of evil, the one who ushered in the kingdom of God. They knew him as that way, and they submitted to him as Lord. Kurios, that was a word that was used to describe the emperor of Rome. He was the one that everybody was subject to. He was the one, when he walks in the room, everybody falls on their face and and pays uh, homage to him and and gives obeisance to him. And what these pagans were seeing about this Antioch church was, was that they loved this character, Jesus, in that way. In other words, Jesus was everything, everything to these Antioch Christians, to these Antioch believers. The pagans saw that. When I was, so I don't know how many of you know my sort of story, uh, you know, my upbringing and all that kind of stuff, but so my parents did not grow up in typical kind of Christian homes. And they both came 
to their marriage to one another with a boatload of baggage. And they married each other, and they had problems, big problems. And for the first 10 years of my life, I was somewhat oblivious to all this kind of stuff. But then as I got a little older, I kind of could see things and notice things, and I realized, boy, this, this is dysfunction city over here. And my parents uh, came actually very close in their relationship to ending it, to divorcing. Because there was so much of a mess going on in their relationship. And I, I didn't understand it all, of course, and it was a very dark time for my family, but, but something happened to them. I don't know if the right word to describe it is my parents were converted. I don't know if the right word is they were revived or renewed. They went from nominal believer to uh, like hardcore believer. I don't know the right words to describe it. All I know is that they became obsessed with Jesus. All I know is, is that when I was a, a teenager, there was a change in my parents where we, you know, we, we went to church and we went every week. We, my dad was kind of the first, the last person in church and the first guy out of church, you know? Maybe some of you are that person, I don't know. I'm way up at the front here, so I can't see who, who runs as soon as the amen is, is said, but he was in late and out early, and they weren't really involved in the life of the church, that kind of stuff. We were hardcore, go-to-church-once kind of people. And um, if they ever talked about church or religion or anything, it was often talking about the church. You know, they're doing this there, and they're doing that there, and why do they do that, and why are they spending money on that, that kind of stuff. And then after whatever happened to them, and they've never really been able to describe it other than to say that they were so desperate, all they had left was... Jesus, and so they just threw themselves on his mercy, and everything changed, and my parents became, like I said, obsessed with Jesus. They talked to me about Jesus all the time. When I was sinning, they talked to me about my relationship with Jesus. They didn't talk to me about, you know, do this and don't do that, and make sure you keep your nose clean. They talked to me about my relationship with the Savior, and they took us to church where we'd, we'd, we'd hear people proclaim this gospel of Jesus in, in great power, with great passion, etc. And And for a while, I have to admit, um, I didn't like it. Because my friends would come over, and then my parents would talk to my friends about Jesus, and I'd be like so embarrassed, and it was weird. Girls would come over, and I thought they were into me, but they really kind of wanted to hang out with my mom in the kitchen and talk to her about Jesus. But it was absolutely incredible. My parents became, I guess, Jesus freaks. And I want to ask us, what do we want people to think when they think about the people of Grace Valley? I mean, there's a lot of people who are ignorant of Christianity, okay? They don't know much about Christianity. They maybe think it's about rituals, doing different things like Lord's Supper on a Sunday, coming to services, that kind of thing. Maybe they think it's about rules, you know, make sure you don't drink, don't smoke, and don't go with girls who do. Maybe they think it's about causes, right? You know, climate change, human trafficking, euthanasia, abortion. We, we speak out against things. Maybe that's what they think Christianity is about. But what do we want to be known for? 
What do we want people to think about when they think about Grace Valley Church? Do we want to say, well, that's a very solid, reformed church. They do Presbyterianism very well there. Do we want them to say, man, you know, they worship awesome. That, th- those musicians are incredible. They really have a great sound system. Or do we want them to say, their kids' programs are so good. You know, my kids come out of Grace Kids and they, they're excited because they've learned a lot. Or do we want them to say, man, they're super friendly. You can't walk in there without people coming up and getting to know you and, and, and sharing, a, uh, sharing a good word with you. Or, or do we want them to know that we have great ministries like Grief Share or our community dinners taste better than every other church's. Or, uh, you know, we, we do a tax clinic and, and we, you know, we, we really care about the poor. All these things are super good, super good. I praise God that we're involved in all these ministries, but at the heart of who we are, my prayer would be that anybody who ever encountered a person from Grace Valley Church would say, man, I don't know much about them, and in fact, I feel like they're kind of weird, but they're really into this guy, Jesus. They can't seem to get enough of this guy, Jesus. They can't seem to get enough talking about this guy, Jesus. This guy, Jesus, whoever he is, has had some kind of massive impact on their lives. That we would be Christians, Christ ones. Now, that was the main thing that was known about this community in Antioch. Now, what were the features that made that visible? And what were the things that they did that sort of inculcated or, or cultivated that in them? There's, there's three. I mean, so, so this is a one-point sermon. I just gave you the point of the sermon. And then there's three, like, sub-points. So we're not done. We've got to go through them yet. They're the features of this Christ-obsessed community. What were the features? Well, first of all, bold evangelism. If we're going to be a church that people say, well, man, they're obsessed with Jesus Christ, you cannot escape the fact that bold evangelism is part of it. What caused this church to be born in the first place? Persecution. It, it, I am still blown away by the fact that the first Christians in Jerusalem, the first believers in Jerusalem experienced persecution, so they took off. They had to leave their homeland. Maybe they had lived there for centuries and centuries and centuries, and all their family was there, and all their community was there, and they took off. They had to flee. They had to run away, and the very thing that caused their fleeing, which was their faith in Jesus Christ, was the thing that they kept talking about on the way. Would you do that? Or would you say, I got to keep this a little bit on the down low, because it got me in a lot of trouble in my last place of living, but they couldn't help it. They couldn't help it. They had to share it because, you see, when something is so important to you, when you love something, you've got to share it. By the way, I'll just, I just saw Come From Away with Jessica a couple weeks ago. I loved it. It was awesome. You should all go, even if you have to sit in the absolute nosebleeds. It's worth it. Why am I telling you this? Because strangely enough, it's the sharing of an experience with other people that actually completes your own enjoyment of it. 
That's why the Psalms are always saying, praise the Lord with me, praise the Lord with me, praise the Lord with me. And so these people were characterized by bold evangelism. And, you know, it doesn't have to be difficult. You can go to work and your, your colleague at work says, so what did you do this weekend? You say, well, I went to church. I went to Grace Valley Church and I heard this great sermon <laughs> about what it means to be a church. And we're really working hard on that. And you just drop it. You just, boom, just drop it. Oh, yeah, yeah, we were doing this seminar at our church about, you know, how, what it's like to, how, how, to, how to learn to forgive people in relationships. It's been really helpful for me. Boom, you just drop it. It's like the parable of the sower. Have you ever thought about the parable of the sower? He was a farmer, right? He knew the right kind of soil to grow the seed. He knows where it's supposed to go, but he's just out there just chucking it all over the place indiscriminately. It's fallen on pavement. It's fallen on asphalt. It's fallen in, in clay. It's fallen in all kinds of terrible places where it has pretty much no chance of growing. But he doesn't care. That's not his problem. His problem is spread, spread, spread. So just do it. Just do it. Don't worry about what you're going to say, honestly. Just tell people you love Jesus. And if you blush, who cares? Right? Like when you're 15 and you got a girlfriend and you say, yeah, my girlfriend's Sally. And you blush about it, even though you really like her. And you blush about it so you don't want to bring it up. Maybe you're blushing about your relationship with Jesus. But bring it up anyway. Just, just do that. Just do that. And someone says, well, how can you believe in a God when there's no evidence of him? Just say, whatever. Jesus changed my life. I love him. And show your joy. That's, that's the next thing. The second feature is show your joy or a life changed for service. Verse 22 and 23. News of this, so this new church in Antioch, news of it spread to the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Okay, so Jerusalem hears there's action in Antioch. There's a church growing. They're getting non-Jews to convert, right, straight out of paganism into their faith, and they say, we better check this out, and so what do they do? They send Barnabas there, and it says that he sees what the grace of God did. Well, what does that mean? See, grace is an invisible thing. It's not something you can see with your eyes, but you can see the effects of grace, and he saw the effects of grace. He saw God's grace at work in this Antioch church. And, and certainly, one of the things he saw was that in this super immoral city, that lives were being changed. They were being changed from sort of self-centered indulgence of my own desires to, to self-sacrificial, righteous living. And that's what made this grace visible. So verse 29, we have an example of it. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. So remember, Agabus comes down and he says there's going to be a famine and uh, the, the church in Jerusalem is poor. So the people of Antioch, they bring a collection together and they share it uh, and send it with Barnabas and Saul down to Jerusalem for the church there. And you think, okay, great, they took a collection. But think about this, okay? These are the pagan dogs, all right? Well, that's what the Jews call them, okay? It's not what I call them, because that's what I am. But that's what the Jews called them. They had a racial and ethnic hatred towards the Jewish people. They didn't, they didn't, 
They didn't have natural sympathy for people who were kind of like them and down on their luck. They had actually, by nature, a great antipathy towards these, these people living in this tiny, little, rebellious, very difficult, pain-in-the-butt uh, province on the, on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, these Jewish people were always causing difficulty for the Romans because they were such hard-headed people. And yet, here these pagans are radically generous. What does it say? It says, as each one was able. So they didn't divide up the amount and say, okay, everybody, we're going to send $5,000 to uh, Jerusalem and there are 500 people here, so we all give five bucks. Did I get that? No, that's wrong. I don't, I'm terrible at math. But you get what I'm saying. They didn't just sort of divide it all up among them. Someone was able to give 10 times more than someone else, but they all looked at what they had to give and they gave radically generously to those who were not like them. That is a sign, you see. That is a sign of God's grace. Wouldn't it be great if people came here, experienced us either in this place or wherever they meet us and in, in our lives or in our ministries at, at the office or whatever, and they say, you know, I, I see something in them. I can't even really put my finger on it, but there is a joy in that place. There is a joy in that people. There is a, a, a magnanimity. I love that word. A magnanimity. It's really hard to say, but it's a great word. There is an, a big-heartedness about them. There is a, a joie de vivre, and it's a je ne sais quoi, and it makes you start speaking other languages because it's, it's so hard to capture, but it's so beautiful to see, and it's so attractive. There's something about them. They are so selfless. They are so quick to offer help, and, and whether it's financial or whether it's time or whether it's emotional, whatever, they just give. Third thing, um, another feature is that they were hungry to know more about Jesus. Barnabas shows up, and he looks around, and he's like, this place is amazing. There's all kinds of exciting stuff happening here. But one of the things he notices is that they're hungry to be taught. So he leaves, he goes to Tarsus, he gets Saul, he says, you've got to come with me. They go back to Antioch, and it says there in verse 26, for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the people and taught great numbers of them. Why did they do that? Because they were hungry to know more about this Jesus that they were obsessed with. And you know, this is a good test of spiritual health, right? Like, as you try to gauge your spiritual health, as we as a community try to gauge our spiritual health, one of the great questions to ask is, how's your appetite? Have you ever been to the doctor and you're feeling sick? You know, this happens, right? People go to the doctor and they're feeling sick and they're not sure what's wrong with them. And one of the questions that always gets asked by the doctor is, how's your appetite? Because when you have no appetite, when you don't want to eat, oftentimes that's a sign that something is seriously wrong. If we want to be Christ ones, if we want to be Christians, we've got to desire to know him, to study him, to learn him. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, we looked at that last fall. Um, Many of you know that uh, one of my heroes in life is a man by the name of Timothy Keller. Uh, 
when I started as a solo pastor in a little church just up the hill uh, a while ago, I was absolutely terrified of the task of having to pastor this community. I didn't think I had a clue what I was doing, and certainly I didn't think I had a clue about how to preach. And so I rediscovered this guy named Tim Keller, who I had known a little bit when I was in seminary. And uh, in a 2005, I started studying him seriously. And for five years, I... I scoured, this is before he was famous and writing all his books, so I had to scour the internet for every book, for every lecture, for every sermon I could get my, fi- my fingers on to listen to, to read, to understand everything I could about him and about ministry in order that I would be better capable of doing my own ministry. And over the course of the time, I began to identify so closely with him that I almost felt like I was sort of thinking his thoughts after him. So if you would ask me about a certain issue or subject matter or something, I felt pretty confident that I could tell you kind of what he would think about it. That's discipleship. That's discipleship. That's what we should be doing with Jesus. It's very hard to do on your own, okay? I mean... Barnabas went and got Saul. He needed help. We have, we have myself and we have Mark, two staff uh, leaders for, for discipleship ministry. And we have support staff with Megan in administrative ministry. And we have lay leaders within the community. And it's, it's wonderful and it's beautiful. But we have to do that together. And just so you know, an application of this is that right now Mark and I are kind of, especially Mark, but Mark and I are kind of working through how to develop a... a a comprehensive kind of discipleship pathway in Grace Valley Church for our, our kids, not just our kids, but our, our kids, our teens, our adults. If you're a new believer and you come in to Grace Valley, how do you fit in? If you're a mature believer, how do you develop in your maturity in a kind of a comprehensive way? Through teaching classes, through doing seminars, through running a uh, Side-by-side ministries where you work with a, a younger, less mature Christian works alongside with a, an older, more mature Christian because discipleship is something that, that is necessary for every follower of Jesus Christ. But the point is here is you need to be hungry for it. We can set the table. But as a church, we need to desire to sit down and eat. And it's a feature friends, of a church when it has a spiritual appetite to know Christ. That's a feature of of a vibrant Christian church. All right, let me close this way. Um, When you look at verse 21 and verse 24 and verse 26, what you see is exciting little pictures of this Antioch church where great numbers of people are coming to know the Lord and joining the church community. And you say to yourself, wow, what a hopping place, right? Like there's people being converted and in this extremely hostile environment like the city of Antioch. And if you're like me, you think, man, I'd love to see that here. I'd like to see more of that here. What should we do to make it happen? Look at verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them. Antioch was a remarkable church, and the people around Antioch noticed. They did, they, they did many things well in a lot of ways, but you know, none of that amounts to anything 
if the Lord's hand is not with you. And so we want to develop a discipleship ministry. Great. We want to continue doing the ministries that we do. Great. We want to provide, uh, uh, and I don't mean this in a negative way. I mean this in an actually positive way. We want to provide quality worship on the Lord's day. Great. Powerful preaching, hopefully, and powerful music, hopefully, and powerful experiences of communing with God, hopefully, and all of that is great, but what really matters at the end of the day, friends, is if the Lord's hand is with us. Now, you can't make the Lord's hand be with you because you're not the Lord and you can't manipulate Him, but that's really important to remember because if this church doesn't develop and grow, etc., according to what our expectations are. You know what the danger is? The danger is is that you say, you know what, maybe we need to make changes. You know, we got to do things differently. We've got to be more relevant. We've got to be more current. We've got to do our teaching differently or we've got to do our ministries differently in order to snag people somehow. But we just saw that there are features that ought not be changed. Biblical teaching, life-transforming service, And the first one I said, which I forget now, bold evangelism. (laughs) These are features that, that never go out of style. And so the last thing, or maybe the first thing, that we should be doing is we should be praying. Lord, let your hand be with us. If your hand is with us, we will succeed. May we be faithful in our calling as church and as Christians and may we see fruit being born through your hands work with us. Now that should be freeing actually, you know? It should be really freeing. It shouldn't make us say, hmm, you know, well, we're not growing as much as we, we, we should be or we're not experiencing as much uh, uh, spiritual ex- ecstasy as we should be. Does that, maybe we're doing something wrong because maybe God's hand isn't with us and what did we do wrong that his hand isn't with us? No, no, no. What it should do is it should free us to say, Father, we're going to be faithful, we're going to depend upon you and we're going to trust that your hand is with us because we are your people. You promised that. You promised it to Abraham. You promised it to Isaac. You promised it to Jacob. You promised it to your son Jesus and you promised it to the church. You promised it to us all. Maybe not the best way of wrapping it up, but amen.